Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Operation Sequel. Today we're going to be talking about Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII released for the PlayStation in January of 1997 for Japan and then it didn't come to America, well North America, until September and then Europe didn't have to wait too much longer than that, they got it in November. Now this is hasn't been re-released too many times. It, it did get a port to Windows and of course the iOS and Android point. And the only other one that has happened is the PS4, which is the port that I played this time. And it's actually really good. I'll let you guys know about that. And here is where we'll start to see a big difference in the staff. The director this time is Yoshinori Kitase. The previous directors, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, has been relegated to a producer role. Now the artists are Yusuke Naora, Tetsuya Nomura, and the writer team being Kazushige Nojima and Yoshinori Kitase as well. Of course, the composer is Nobuo Uematsu. And here we can see, I believe I've mentioned it before, how Kitase and Nomura will start being more and more focused on within the staff as these Final Fantasies continue. There wasn't actually a decent sized story blurb on anything I could find, not the guide, not inside the game, like there is sometimes with Zelda, not even in the uh, back of the box, none of that. So the best I have right now is the back of the box for, I believe it's the European version. The Shinra Corporation is draining our planet of its life forces. Cloud Strife is a cold-hearted mercenary, accepts a mission from a group of eco-warriors, unaware that it will lead him on a journey that will change not just his life, but the lives of every soul in the universe. Welcome to Final Fantasy VII, an epic adventure on three CDs where sorcery and science collide, where friendships are lost and won, and where one man can make the difference that lasts forever. Uh, not exactly the most exciting of copy, but hey, we didn't really need it back then, because this was everywhere. This was on TV, this was in every mag. this was amazing. Also, it wasn't just one man, I think that's kind of unfair, and that, you know, makes the rest of the party seem kind of useless, and it's not true. And of course, just to be fair to the source material, we'll read the rest of the back of the box. There's over 128 minutes of mind-blowing cinematic sequences. You can interact with hundreds of characters who will shape your destiny and develop magical powers and summon raging demons. So if that's at all important to you and you're still on the fence after all this time, hopefully that will sway you into playing this game. Okay, first let's get my personal history out of the way on the sucker because um, in, for a lot of players they measure their video game career i guess for lack of a better term in terms of before final fantasy 7 and after final fantasy 7 the impact that this game had cannot be overstated at all really i mean you can read some up just ridiculously overblown claims about this game and actually most of them will be true now i had friends that played final fantasy 7 i had a couple of them that didn't want to play it because there was too much reading but I th they were in the very small minority. For myself, personally, I played 7 at exactly the same time I played 8. And I don't mean I played them simultaneously. I, I mean, I rented 8, bought 7, and then I just kind of played 8 to see what it was like. And then I went back and finished 7 and then played 8 again. This is not necessarily my favorite of the three PlayStation era Final Fantasies. I do think it's the most important, but I tend to prefer 8, or at least I did. Again, it's been over a decade since I've played Final Fantasy 8. But anyway, we're not talking about 8, we're talking about 7. And I had a huge chip on my shoulder, probably, let's say, remember that time when it was like cool to hate Final Fantasy 7? Of, oh, it's not as good as 6, or oh, it's not as good as 
eight or nine. Most people, I think, say nine because that's Sakaguchi's favorite game. And if you say that that's the best game, well, then you can always point to Sakaguchi and say he, he, he likes it. So it makes you seem like you're right, but in the end, it doesn't matter at all. But even that chip lasted a long time. Like, I've only played this once. And like I said, that was around the time of the launch of eight. I don't have the overwhelming nostalgia for this. As a matter of fact, in my mind, I, I believe I was being a just just an obnoxious teenager and I played it up to be worse than it was mainly because everybody else liked it you know, you know how that goes sometimes you're just like that as a teenager what I think now has changed quite a bit I, I don't think I'm going to uh, shout the praises of Final Fantasy 7 as the best one in the series but the what I say now will be different than what I used to feel towards it and even on other po you know like earlier podcasts you might have heard me bash 7 and some of that I still do believe, but some of that will change because I played it again. And it just reinforces the fact that, you know, I should really keep my mouth shut unless I've played it recently. There is one thing I'll talk about towards the end, and I do blame Final Fantasy for ruining something, but we'll talk about that later. The port that I played was the PS4 port that came out a little while ago. Uh, I don't have the year in front of me, I'm sorry. After playing this, this is the way every remaster should be done. Like, even games where it's not an RPG, like you know, Resident Evil Remaster. There are three different cheats, mods, modifier, whatever you want to call them. There is, if you click in the thumbstick, it is triple speed, which makes grinding in this, especially for your limit breaks, way easier. Especially if you're at a point where you can just attack, 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 and they're done. And if you click in the other thumbstick, it gives you not god mode per se, because you'll still take damage. Let's say you have 2,000 hit points. If you get hit for 3,000 hit points, it'll still kill you. But if you get hit for 1,800, it will heal instantly as soon as the hit has registered as damage. It'll go right back. It also completely refills your limit breaks at all times. Basically, it's not god mode, but you know, darn close to it. And then the last one is is an ability that most Final Fantasy games have in there in some degree, but having it on just the click of a button, it's no encounters. And for some things like say the City of the Ancients where you know sure that clock puzzle isn't like hard or anything but it can get frustrated if you're constantly being interrupted by random battles so that is a godsend to turn on if you just want to focus on the story with the god mode and the triple speed you can blast through this really quick personally i spent 40 hours in there because i didn't remember much about this game at all and i wanted to experience a bunch of it i didn't like go get all the limit breaks i didn't you know um like, I toyed around with the battle arena. With god mode and triple speed, that is easy, but I didn't really do much to it. Like, I got a few things, but I didn't get uh, Omni Slash or any of that nonsense. I did a few of the side things. Getting Tifa's limit break and Barrett's limit break. You know, just small things that you don't necessarily have to do, but you want to work on. I also tried to make it a point to play with characters that I didn't play before. Like, I used Kate Sith, or, I'm sorry... It, technically pronounced Keishi, isn't it? But I will say Kate Sith because, you know, I just can't help it. And I used Red 13 a lot. And last time I played, they kind of got shuffled off into oblivion because when you're a teenage boy, I can't tell you how cool Vincent is. Like, there's nothing that compares to how cool he is when you're a teenage boy. Now, now he's a bit of a doofus. But hey, time makes fools of us all. So with all that preamble out of the way, let's start talking about the game itself. Now there are a couple things that are interesting here. Like I think being compared to 6 is bad. 
because it's kind of the polar opposite of six in a lot of ways for me at least so like in six you start as the giant empire and here in seven you start as a bunch of terrorists and they don't really shy away from the fact that yeah you're you're just blowing stuff up and trying to make life miserable for the shinra which i think it's not so much told in the story but it turns out to bite them the way they have that grudge against shinra after all, like, if there were times in the story where if they would have worked with Shinra, it probably would have been a little bit better. Uh, another important thing is no crystals at all in this. This is all very much about the life stream. And I'm sure you know what that is, so no use explaining it. And if you don't know, Bugenhagen will make sure that you know what it is. There are things like Pincer Attack is still here, but just like in the last ones, it didn't make a big difference. Ah, uh, they still do that thing with bosses, like, even as early as the Guard Scorpion of bosses that have a phase where you shouldn't attack unless you're massively over leveled and then you can attack oh speaking of levels i did beat this uh i want to say i was around 53 i believe and i went with the i guess for me it's a canonical party for the last boss of barrett uh tifa and cloud now the hardest thing to get past on this is the graphics the remaster does help because it almost looks like it was a stylistic choice like, all of those polygons are very... Sh they're sharp, but they meld into each other well. They did good on the blending. They did good. Oh, boy. So it doesn't look too bad. Like, it still looks primitive, especially the CG. The, one of the very impressive things about this is the way it melds that CG into the pre-rendered backgrounds. That's still actually kind of impressive. Speaking of the pre-rendered backgrounds... It's not as easy to tell where you have to go sometimes like it is with something like Resident Evil where it's pre-rendered. There are a lot of times you're like, oh, I didn't know I could climb on that or I didn't know I could go behind that because it it has a lot of trouble displaying depth with these pre-rendered backgrounds. Nothing huge, not game-breaking or anything like that, but there are some points in the game that will be frustrating unless you have uh, the ability, well, the ability. No, it, it's just a button you push. But there's a button you can push that shows you where all the exits and entrances are on the screen at all times. Entrances are green arrow, exits are red arrow. Uh, if you're colorblind, you might be a little screwed, but I'm sure you can figure it out. So without that on, I played through half the game without that on, and there were places that I got frustrated of, where do you go? I don't see an exit. But they're there. It's not too hard to find. You won't throw your controller down in disgust and walk away. It's just a little bit of a frustrating bit. The only other complaint... I can say I would have against this in terms of just technical things is if you didn't have the triple speed this is very slow and it actually makes me worry a little bit about 8 because I remember 8 had those summons and I believe there's a long version and a short version I think these animations even just your character animations are very slow you'll probably be flipping on that triple speed quite a lot and you probably won't be playing the original PlayStation version. There's really no need to now. Like, this is kind of obsoleted any other version of it besides the Windows port. So, the big shift for Final Fantasy VII is Materia. And while I'm sure this will be redundant because everybody knows how Materia works now, just in case you don't, uh, if you've played Final Fantasy VI, you remember how with Guardian Forces you gather AP as you battle with them equipped? Think of Materia kind of like those, or right, they were espers. I don't remember what I said before. I'm not going over this again. Um, as you battle with materia on, you gain AP towards it. Now, let's say it's something like the all materia, 
which you can junk, you can combine with other things. I shouldn't say junction because that's eight. You can combine it with other material to do like a fire spell that hits all. Now the level of that all materia determines how many times you can use that in a battle. Materia is kind of it actually mixes like bits of five and six. Remember how in five you could equip certain abilities to your character and not so much a class after a while. Materia is kind of like that, like fire spells are a materia, lightning spells are a materia, but it's not just spells, it's also things like steel or enemy skill if you want to rock a blue mage, or death blow or manipulate, or there's a bunch of materia for both magic users and for strength users. There's also your summon materia, but I'm actually kind of disappointed in the summons in this because they aren't really that special. I mean, it's cool to see, you know, Shiva and Ifrit here represented, but they're not very powerful. You don't have a lot of reason to use them until you start getting to, like, Knights of the Round. And I didn't get Knights of the Round this time because, again, I didn't feel like Chocobo breeding or any of that. But I'm sorry, we're getting off track. What stops, what's supposed to stop you from just massively overpowering a single person is every time you equipped a magic materia, it would lower your strength and your max HP while also raising your magic power and your MP. So you kind of have to have that balance. Like if you want Cloud to be able to cast some spells, you have to be very careful of your ratio because you don't want him turning into a glass cannon. Or maybe you do. Like personally, I went with one glass cannon that was a mage and then one kind of tankier guy and then one that was just straight up damage whatever damage I could get. Uh, there are some interesting combinations you can get with it and it's very easy to break the game, which I'm gonna ding the game for. Like when a game is this easy to break, the battle system loses its luster. Like it's great if you can find a way to break a game. Like with five, there are certain class combinations you can do where to just break it. You have to work a little harder towards it. Here, the material doesn't necessarily fall in your lap, but it's not very hard to acquire the means to break the game. And in this regard, it's kind of, again, kind of the opposite of six. I think the battle system is meh, but the story is well worth coming back to. So let's, let's talk about the story a little bit. The story, this is the first time Square has really doubled down on the whole mystery angle. Like in the beginning, you're going up against Shinra. And it's kind of a mystery. Who's in charge of Shinra? Why are they doing this? All that stuff that you, you generally see in the start of a Final Fantasy game, you know it's not going to be the end plot. And once you figure out the conclusion to that mystery, sorry, couldn't think of the word there, then it shows a bit of a new mystery, and that mystery is Sephiroth. And that's the mystery that takes you through 90% of the game. Like, they don't really do a zero-miss kind of thing here. And they do a very good job of once a mystery is starting to wrap up, even a smaller one, they always present you with a new one. Now, most of the mysteries revolve around Sephiroth or Genova, but it kind of goes from Shinra to Genova to Sephiroth, and by the time you're figuring out Sephiroth, you're at the end of the game. So I gotta say, their story pattern is much better this time. They also do a very good job of constantly showing you what the stakes are. Like, when you're playing as the Avalanche gang members group, whichever you want to call them, they show they show the consequences of them doing what they do. Like they drop the mid well, Avalanche doesn't drop the Midgar plate, but because of Avalanche, that's why Shinra drops it, and it shows that there is some kind of cause and effect going on. It's not just our scrappy band of heroes. 
it does kind of fall off towards the middle and latter half of the game where, say, if you wanted to go chocobo breeding, it's like there's a giant meteor coming and you're just sitting there watching chocobo's bone. So it kind of, there are times it feels video gamey, but it always seems to be your choice that it happens. Overall, I think the story, now, when I first saw the story, it was very confusing to my stupid little teenage mind. I didn't quite get the nuances behind it. And it seems to me, whereas you have things like Final Fantasy 3 being all about your community, you know, that community is what makes you strong. And then 4 is, and even 6 to some extent, is about coping with failure. The thesis behind 7 seems to be identity, like, like how you identify it yourself. Like, especially with Cloud, like it's a big thing with Cloud, but even there are little bits with like, Sid, where, he, you know, he thinks he identifies himself with space a whole bunch, but in the end, he realizes that's not the most important thing. Or Barrett, you know, he identifies himself as this leader, but in the end, it actually turns out to be better that he's not, especially when it comes to things like Marlene. So, a lot of this game has to do with identity. And that's kind of a more mature subject than I had remembered it. It doesn't handle it in the most sensitive and best of ways, but the fact that that theme is there is very cool, and now I'm very curious to see what I didn't pick up in, like, 8 and 9. Of course, Final Fantasy VII is famous for one major thing, and that would be Eris, right? So, this time I wanted to fully experience it, like, the way you were supposed to. So, as soon as you see Eris, Aerith, whichever you'd like, you know, you buy the flower, you're nice to her. You... I constantly used her in my party. I didn't feel the mechanical loss of her too hard because most of her limit breaks, you don't ever need to use for their healing properties. Also, getting her her limit break was bleh. That was, that was a bit of a grind because, you know, you want to keep her as a healer, but then you need some offensive capability. It was, it was just a bit of a pain. But anyway, off topic. I didn't feel her loss too hard because... It's very easy to replace her in terms of mechanics. Now, in terms of story, yeah, you know, it's not too bad. I don't think it beats Galif, but it's not too bad. So far, she's she's up there with like Palom and Porum and Galif, you know, the big ones. But at the time, I don't remember it being a big deal because I had played Chrono Trigger and spoiler for that, if you haven't played it, you lose your main character, kind of like you do here. It's actually a bit of a parallel. So it wasn't a huge thing to me. Uh, same with, what was that, the mana game? Can't remember the name, which one it was, but you lost a, a major character in that too. But I don't think it deserves the derision that it gets. And I don't, uh, the only thing you should praise it for is your nostalgia for it. I don't think it was a major break in storytelling of, oh my gosh, they killed the main character. Because to be honest, she is important, but once you get past her death and what goes on after that, the only thing that really mattered was the Holy Materia, and that wasn't really even her, that was just something she wore. So, she wasn't that important to the story. But I'm not knocking it in any way, it was absolutely fine. Another big thing about um, Final Fantasy VII is all the mini-games, right? Like, Square went nuts with the mini-games. There's the motorcycle mini-game, there's the snowboarding mini-game, the chocobo racing. There's a lot to do if you want to just putter around in this world. And some of them hold up. And some of them really don't. Uh, I find Chocobo Racing kind of infuriating. It's not Mario Kart. It's not even like 
tune Grand Prix racing. It's it's just kind of chocobo racing. It's it's a fun distraction, but I would find it incredibly tedious to actually use that to breed the chocobos and all that nonsense. The motorcycle one was still fun. The snowboarding one was still fun. Well, that's really about it. I mean, there's there's a few other ones, but for the most part, all the mini games they bring up to break up that style of gameplay, that's kind of fun. Like uh, the little mini game where you're climbing the glacier. Yeah, that's kind of cool. That's a nice little twist you wouldn't normally see. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for mini games in Final Fantasy, especially if it comes to Triple Triad, which I'll be hitting next, and I probably will be not podcasting for like three weeks because Triple Triad is amazing. But yes, here, they're absolutely fine. They're not painful to get through, but a lot of them kind of lost their luster. Maybe it's just because it's so old and we've played games better. And the ones that do have like a story purpose, these mini games, like say the CPR one or the the one where you're, you're televised as a soldier and you've got to try to mix in with the rest of the soldiers, they, they work with the story, so it, it's not too bad at all. Now, speaking of story, Sephiroth is also incredibly popular. Like, he is a lot of people's best Final Fantasy villain. And at the time that I played it as a teenager, it didn't make much sense. It was always, why is Sephiroth everywhere? That's a little weird. I didn't really get that whole, he's in the live stream, these are projections. Now, I can't say, I, I should have looked this up, I'm very sorry. But I want to say this got a retranslation because I don't remember a lot of these story breakdowns that it would do. It, it's much clearer than it was. Now, it could have be that I was just a stupid teenager. But one nice thing, because chances are if you play this, you're not going to want to blast through it. You just kind of want to take it slow and experience it. They do these story breakdowns every once in a while where... If you're at the Gold Saucer, your whole party spends the night, and one of the new guys, I believe it's Vincent, at that point, or maybe it's Sid, will ask, okay, so what's been going on so far? And then Cloud will take the time to actually, in depth, explain what's going on. And yet, it can be a bit of a slog if you already have been following it closely, but if you're coming back from like a two, three day break and you're not quite sure you remember everything, they are very nice, and I'm very glad they put those in. Now, back to Sephiroth really quick. I forgot how much they humanized Sephiroth during the beginning. Like, that scene where he's there in the library researching about himself, it really humanizes him. Now, sure, that is also a little weird because that's Cloud's memory, and Cloud's memory is not the most trustworthy of narrators. But what they do with Genova and all that, until I believe Hojo, until the towards the end of the game, kind of smashes all that, uh, they humanize him quite well, and he is the most humanized of all the villains we've seen so far. You can it, It's a twisted logic, but it's still something you can follow as to why he's doing it. They also go to really, really great lengths to prove how strong Sephiroth is. So, like, a good example is, I believe it's Midgard Zolem in this, is the name of the giant snake. I'm, like, 80% sure, and I'm sorry, Grim, if I pronounce this. I have a friend who's from Iceland, and I tried to pronounce it correctly, but chances are I'm going to be getting it wrong. It's Midgard Zormer, the giant snake from Norse mythology, that I believe it's referencing. Anyway, so if you walk across this swamp, you will get no fight with him, and chances are, unless you're like me and you've just been grinding and grinding and grinding, he will kill you. Matter of fact, he does uh, move to like snap you out of the battle. But I did grind up enough to beat him because I never did as a teenager. 
it was, I always did the, you know, take the chocobo across and come back later kind of thing. But they use him a, a fight that you conceivably cannot win at your level if you've just been playing along. And they show how strong Sephiroth is by just impaling this snake on a cross as soon as you get across. Like, they're showing you a bunch of times how strong Sephiroth is. Now, that's very good for the story because then that kind of raises a question to where you're starting to doubt Cloud's story right from the get-go. Because if he's that strong, how did some measly little new recruit stand up to him and come out alive? And as it turns out, you know, that's not exactly what happened. But I, there are seeds of doubt planted in Cloud, whether through, it's through little comments from Eris or little comments from Tifa or just inconsistencies with the way things work. And that's a very subtle touch that is very cool. I like that a lot. Another thing they did that is a very subtle thing is when you do stop at the Gold Saucer, right? And if you don't know what the Gold Saucer is, it's where a lot of these mini games are. It's just a place to goof around, have fun, buy some new equipment, stuff like that. Like, think Carnival. Even there, they do a nice subtle thing of one of the characters saying, guys, it probably isn't the best of ideas that we spend this much time here because we should be doing other stuff. And at least they acknowledge that fact that, yes, this is video gamey, you're going to spend a lot of time here, but let's acknowledge within the story that, you know, you wouldn't have a band of adventurers spending a week and a half at a carnival playing whack-a-mole. Another little story bit that I really liked was the Cosmo Canyon bit. Now, I believe that I compared the little minute when you break up the party in Final Fantasy VI to Cosmo Canyon. I'm sorry, that is the wrong place. It is in this game, but I had the wrong name. Uh, Cosmo Canyon is where Red 13 is from, and that's where you get the giant speech from Guggenhagen about how the life stream works and what will happen and all that. But that bonfire scene afterwards, that's another place once you talk to Tifa where she starts to bring up these questions about your story and why I thought that was Zack kind of thing. Now, the explanation is a little meh. It falls a little flat once you finally get to the end of the game and it's all about Genova cells. Well, your Genova cells mixed with your memory. That was kind of eh. I would almost rather Cloud just be like PTSD delusional about what happened and not have anything to do with Genova cells at all. Like, I think that might have been a little more interesting, but what they did is absolutely fine. That it, They haven't done this type of <clears throat> amnesia story before. It's at least interesting. It's not their usual bland, I can't remember kind of thing. So anything I say against it, don't take it really as a knock, just as more something I noticed. And yes, just to get it on the record, that place was Fort Condor, where you have to do that RTS minigame, which, now that I replayed it, is so painfully slow like even with triple speed painfully slow it's actually better if you just level your party up and then let them get to the end and then defeat the boss that you have to defeat instead of trying to stop everybody because wow that was really painful wutai was a little annoying but mainly because of the sequence of events you have to talk to very specific people in very specific order to actually conclude that place and that I found kind of annoying. Now, the boss fights that you go through, you know, the pagoda that you go up, actually really fun. And it was rare in this because most boss fights were a bit of a pushover. Now, I may have been leveled. I don't know what the median level is for a lot of these places. I have a guide that I check every once in a while because I like to see, okay, am I at the medium and below what you should be or, you know, am I above it? But this really didn't say, which by the way, cracking that sucker back open after all these years, ah, 
smells so good. Uh, but yes, I'm sorry. The Great Glacier is a bit of an annoying just because it's a giant maze you have to get through. And I'm not a big fan of mazes. But all in all, there weren't too many sections here that were frustrating. Oh, and I was thinking about going for a platinum in this, and I didn't look at a guide on how to do it, but what stopped me from doing it was the date with Barrett achievement trophy thing. Depending on how you react to certain conversation prompts and even some actions of like who you put in your party, who you don't put in your party, at some point in the game, you will go on, uh, let's say a date, like sort of a date, but I believe the canonical way to do it is you go with Eris. But there's a trophy, of course, to go get it with Barrett because he's the hardest to get. And once I realized I missed that, I was like, ah, whatevs, no, no need for platinum. But I did go on the date with Eris just because, you know, I wasn't paying attention. And I think that due to the story, that's probably the best one to go through. Now, I don't remember Yuffie's and I don't remember Tifa's, but it made more sense on that date. And it's kind of nice to see that your interactions, even if it's not just talking and how you respond to certain things, do matter a little bit. Another small complaint I have is there will come a point in the story where Kate Sith has to sacrifice himself to get the Black Materia. The Black Materia is, in, is the temple that you're in, and as you do like this, I'm guessing, Hellraiser box puzzle, it makes the temple smaller and smaller and smaller, so it'll come to a point where you'll have to crush yourself in order to get it. Now, there was a lot of sentimentality sent, spent on Kate Sith because he was going to sacrifice himself because he's a toy and there are a bunch of them like it. He, what he is is he's a giant stuffed animal controlled by somebody at Shinra headquarters and that does pay off a little bit towards the end but the sentimentality that they spent on it was guys there'll, there'll be another one it's not a big deal so that kind of irked me a little bit um there are some things that are a little just not cringeworthy but a little troublesome just due to the era that it was in and Let's be fair, from what I've seen from Japan, I don't know because I don't live there, they have a very different take towards cross-dressing and homosexuality than a lot of the Western world does. And you'll see that a little bit with the um, the honeybee and cross-dressing cloud in order to get to, uh, what's her name? In order to get to Tifa. Like, so it's a little bothersome, but... It, it won't make you fly into a rage, and it's not the biggest atrocity against society you've ever seen. It's just, oh, that's a little old school. Uh, same thing goes with, like, Sid and Shara. Like, I like Sid in this game. He might be one of my favorite Sids. I don't know. I don't see this Sid strapping dynamite to himself and jumping off of an airship. But this Sid is pretty cool. I mean, he's constantly got the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's, he's constantly just swearing up a story. It's great. Except he's a real dick to Shara. And it's weird to see kind of emotional abuse or, or verbal abuse like that. And it doesn't play it off of like, oh yeah, she deserves it. It doesn't play it off as, wow, Sid's an awful person. It just kind of presents you with it and says, what do you think? Because there is logic that goes both ways of, yeah, she might have deserved it, or no, she didn't deserve I mean, it's up to you as a person, and I much prefer when a game will do that, of just present you with a situation and you draw your own judgments rather than demonize, or what's the opposite of demonize? I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know what the opposite of demonize is. I know there's a word, can't think of it right now. But yeah, it, it doesn't choose one side, it just kind of presents you with that situation. It's a little uncomfortable, but props to them for doing it. I like that. Another thing I like, and this is a complete change of subject, but whatevs, the last bit that you go through 
is not near the slog of like the Jade Passage or the Clefted Dimension. They kind of left that out. That whole, all right, make it through this really tough challenge of a dungeon to get to the end boss. It kind of didn't do that. And I really appreciate that. That was a nice change of pace. Uh, they also do this weird, like the live stream scene. If you played it after Cloud is in like that coma and you fall into the live stream with Tifa, that is a very high concept thing that they got going on. It's very cool. I like that a lot. They really up their story game. All right, all right, so we're running, whew, we're running a bit long. Let me close this out, or start to anyway, by saying Final Fantasy VII, the story is well worth playing through the game. The game itself is not bad, but once you figure out a way to personally break it, and there isn't a prescribed way to break it, unless you go the Knights of the Round route, it's just kind of, how would you like to break this? It's all up to you. Once you get to that point, the game itself starts becoming boring, but the story is what drives you on. And I do think this is still a story worth seeing. Uh, there are some bits, kind of like Final Fantasy VI, how it kind of starts to fall a little boring for a while, but for the most part, it they're constantly drip-feeding you story bits as you move on, unless, of course, you go explore for whatever reason. Now, a couple things I would like to bring to your attention. Number one is Final Fantasy XIII got a lot of hate for how linear it was, for how long it was. This game, you're on a linear path for me. I took my time, I talked to everybody, did all this. It really doesn't open up for a very long time. Like, there is not a lot of exploration to be done until, whew, I believe it's after the Nibelheim incident. So you're a good chunk of the ways into the game. Now again, I haven't played Final Fantasy 13 for a while. I remember that being at like 20 hours, I think, is when the game finally stopped being a quarter. There's really not that much of a difference. Now, don't hate me yet because I haven't played 13 again. We'll see what it's like. It's just something I want to start noticing is how open to exploration these games are because early ones will punish you for exploring. Final Fantasy 1, you go a little too far, that ogre is just going to smash you. Uh, same for like 2 and not so much with 3, but you know, four and five were kind of more open, and six, six, you could get punished really easy for exploring. Like, say, you know, you just drop by Dinosaur Island, and it's holy crap, you just get slaughtered. But I want to start paying attention to how open these games are, because there are some games later in the series that get knocked a lot for how linear there are. So let's let's start paying attention to that. Uh, number two, I blame Final Fantasy VII as ruining a lot of things, as I said before. And I don't think it's the game itself that ruins things, even though, boy howdy, a lot of people wanted their Final Fantasy VII. I think it's, there are two games that I really set down as the fandom ruined it. And this is one and Dark Souls is one. So who cares about Dark Souls, because we're not talking about it. But Final Fantasy VII, I think the fandom for VII almost wrecked Square. Now, they are a company, they can make their own decisions, and it just so happens they made a bunch of bad ones. But it was the fans constant crying for, we need a remake, we want more Final Fantasy VII, make it now, why isn't this Final Fantasy VII? That kind of put Square in that slump. Like, yes, they probably would have done Advent Children anyway, and Advent Children's cool if you want to see things bouncing off each other and yelling and screaming and hitting each other. It's pretty cool, it looks nice. But if we weren't so adamant about wanting a remake, then we probably would not have got a lot of those, like, you know, 
Dirge of Cerberus, Crisis Core, all that, that, what was it, what did they call it, the, the compilation of Final Fantasy VII. I don't think we would have got a lot of that if people would have just let this game go. I'm sure you've seen and maybe even participated in the, why isn't this remade for PS3? Oh my gosh, they did that demo, why can't, don't they want money? You know, that kind of thing. Guys, we should, we should move on. I mean, we are getting a remake and I'm recording this before the remake is out. The way I see it is going one of two ways. You will have people that never really played Final Fantasy VII playing it and liking it because it looks like it's going to play a little closer like the Final Fantasy XV Kingdom Hearts way of things. It's not going to be turn-based or any of that. And then you'll have the Final Fantasy VII people saying they hate it because, oh, you took a classic and you ruined it kind of thing. So I'm very curious to see how, how it pans out. If you're one of those Final Fantasy VII people, and this game is incredibly important to you because this would be like the first game of a new generation. Not just like of systems, I mean of people. You will have kids coming along where the, this is the first one they played. And just like we are with Final Fantasy 1 or 4, it becomes incredibly important to you because it informs who you are in this hobby of, wow, ever, ever since I played this, I love RPGs. That happens to people and I understand how important that is to people. And I don't think a lot of these games that we look at Square and kind of scratch our head, wow, why? I don't think a lot of them would have happened if fans would have just let Final Fantasy VII go. And it's not just this that gets that kind of fandom. Again, like I said, Dark Souls, I think it ruins Dark Souls. But yeah, so my opinion is it is a good game. It is well worth replaying for the story. The gameplay is busted, but everybody kind of knew that. So I've turned around a little bit. I will eat a little bit of my words. It's not a terrible game at all. It has a few caveats, but in the end, it is a nice, like with triple speed, I got through, I don't remember my exact time. I think I said it earlier, but it was a good 30 to 40. I can't remember what I did, what I said earlier. I'm sorry, but triple speed and those cheats, it doesn't matter anymore. Nobody's going to look down on you because, oh, oh, you used triple speed and, and there was a boss where you used the god mode. Nobody nobody cares. Play the game, enjoy it, and in the end, that's all that matters. I mean, this does inform where Square will go. Like, I don't want to say they go more adult, but their storytelling is starting to mature in terms of what stories they're telling and how they're telling it. And this is kind of the start of that. All right, so next we have... Skyward Sword. And Skyward Sword is the waggle fest that I've been dreading ever since the first Zelda. So we'll see how that goes. Alright, thank you very much for listening. And if you would like to listen to our other podcasts and leave a rating, review, message us and say, wow, you guys are the worst podcast I've ever heard, you may do that on like Twitter and Gmail and Facebook, all at the bit effect. So, until next time, I don't know what to put after that. <laughs>